I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways that each of us can make a difference. And as a nonprofit focused on educating and empowering people to get involved in climate action, we rely on the financial support of our listeners. So if you're a regular listener, or brand new for that matter, and you value what you get from us, consider a donation that aligns with that value. All you have to do is head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. Even $5 a month goes a long way to helping us deliver our mission. But if you're short of cash and still want to help out, have your friends subscribe and rate us on your favorite streaming platform. Yeah, great point. The, the reviews add up as well as the, the recommendations. So appreciate all our, our listeners doing that as well. And, you know, before we get into it, Thomas, welcome back from uh, vacation. Thank you, Jason. Uh, yeah, it was great to spend a month on a bicycle. We're excited you made it back in one piece. Thanks, Jason. No, it was really good to take a bit of time off and smell the roses, so to speak. Or the dug furs. <laughs> so historically, when we've come on the show to talk about climate change and its worsening impacts, the dialogue tends to revolve around the government's failure to act. And while it's true that governments have been far too slow to respond, we don't often talk about the underlying reasons. The fossil fuel industry has been waging a decades-long coordinated campaign to delay climate action. They've spent billions of dollars lobbying the government and spreading disinformation. Their efforts have been multifaceted, from lying about the dangers of burning their products to trying to sow doubt about climate science. So today, we're going to explore the ways the industry has worked to delay action, the impact that, that that has had, and as per usual, what we can do. Before we get to today's guest, let's talk about this week's reason for hope. Yeah, thanks, Flora. So California has just filed a lawsuit against basically the entire fossil fuel industry. It's suing uh, a number of major oil companies, including Exxon, Shell, and Chevron for their decades-long deception about the dangers of fossil fuel burning. And the lawsuit seeks to create a fund that would help uh, with recovery efforts following wildfires and storms that have been made worse by climate change. Yeah, this is an exciting development. And, you know, it's worth calling out that California is also, you know, joining a number of other states that have already, you know, filed lawsuits against the fossil fuel companies, including New York and Massachusetts. And so there's just sort of this growing body of entities that are seeking damages and looking to hold them accountable for their, their disinformation. And while we're on the topic of California, also need to give them a shout out for passing a landmark climate bill that requires companies that make over a billion dollars a year to publicly disclose their greenhouse gas emissions. Wow. Yeah, I, I think part of the reason this is so important is that like once California you know, makes these changes, like we look at what happens with emissions laws around vehicles, for, for example, in the Californian EPA, it mm. then typically gets rolled out in other states and other jurisdictions globally. So them taking this stance at a state level is hopefully a big driver to get everybody else on board. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, hopefully it, it you know, we can get some action at a, at a national level in terms of these disclosures. Well, with that, let's uh, get to today's guest. We're excited to have Kathy Mulvey from the Union of Concerned Scientists back on the podcast. Kathy has designed and led corporate accountability initiatives and campaigns since the late 80s. Today, she directs uh, 
climate corporate accountability campaign for the Union Concerned Scientists, uh, conducts research and analysis, builds coalitions, and mobilizes experts and supporters. Before her work at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Kathy was at the EIRIS Conflict Risk Network, where she worked with pension funds, university endowments, and others to support peace and stability in areas affected by genocide and mass atrocities. And before that, Kathy worked with corporate accountability for two decades, serving as both executive director and international policy director. Yeah, impressive resume for sure. And, you know, obviously stoked to have her back on the show. Kathy, welcome back to Climate Optimus. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here again. So let's start you out with the question we do all our guests. Um, When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Yeah, there's actually so much right now, which I think in the face of worsening climate impacts might be a little bit surprising. But you know, we're seeing people mobilizing globally in a march to end fossil fuels that is timed in it to lead up to uh, events of Climate Week in New York City and a UN Secretary General's Climate Ambition Summit. So this is uh, our organization, the Union of Concerned Scientists, is one of more than 600 that are endorsing the march and really sending a, a strong message that that we need to see stepped up climate action and you know heading into that summit the secretary general antonio guterres has been increasingly really calling out that uh, fossil fuels are incompatible with human survival and and calling on the fossil fuel industry to stop its influence peddling and legal threats that are designed to to delay and obstruct progress. It's good to hear the Secretary General, you know, pushing so hard. I, you know, he has some pretty impassioned um, talking points about what's going on and, and certainly takes it very seriously. So yeah, maybe we'll see something, you know, exciting out of this, this upcoming summit. Yeah. And, and, you know, for our work specifically to hold the fossil fuel industry accountable for climate damages and deception, we're seeing real momentum with uh, litigation that has been advanced by cities, counties, and states across the U.S., um, you know, more than 40 jurisdictions at this point. Now, unfortunately, they have been delaying and tying up these cases in in procedural fights for as much as six years for some of the earliest cases filed. Wow. And, and meanwhile, you know, we've seen those, those impacts mount. Uh, so it's about time that communities get access to justice. Well, I hope for sort of a, you know, waterfall of reckoning here. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, well, that's, that's a good segue. I mean, let's talk a little bit about, you know, maybe if you can kind of lay out for folks how historically, you know, fossil fuel organizations have worked to kind of delay climate action, because this isn't a new, a new phenomenon, right? 
No, unfortunately, it isn't. It's really gone back more than 50 years that that major fossil fuel companies, ExxonMobil, Shell, and others have been aware of the danger that their products pose to the global climate, and yet have not only not taken action to transform their own business models for a clean energy future, but have have actually sought to prevent climate action, climate public policy. You know, that ranges from spreading disinformation about climate science itself, um, you know, and, and we, we documented this back in 2015 with our climate deception dossiers. You know, this evidence from internal documents showed how they, you know, sought to line up scientists who would deny the scientific consensus about climate change, how they sought to use political influence uh, through setting up front groups and uh, with misleading names and to interfere in, in policymaking. And, you know, evidence continues to come to light. I mean, just now we're we're reading in the Wall Street Journal about how ExxonMobil was seeking to cast doubt on the severity of, of climate change impacts and its scientists supported research that questioned the findings of mainstream scientists. And it's a long-standing entrenched campaign. And even as the tactics evolve, it continues today. Yeah, both you know, frustrating and disturbing at the same time. Well, you know, you've talked a little bit about sort of the approaches they're employing today. Are, are there other things that they're doing now? I mean, what and what kind of money is being thrown at this? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, most of the major investor owned oil and gas companies now claim to be aligned with net zero global warming emissions by 2050. It's really, it's disinformation and greenwashing. For example, uh, ExxonMobil, again, is, uh, it, it has now disclosed the so-called scope three emissions that come from burning its products. And, you know, these emissions uh, amount to 80 to 90% of the total heat trapping emissions associated with their business. But ExxonMobil at the same time, you know, refuses to take responsibility for for decreasing those emissions, and so is setting is making claims and pledges that relate to a tiny fraction of the overall climate impact of its of its business. Now, even Shell and and BP, which uh, which acknowledge some responsibility for emissions from burning their products, have actually walked back climate pledges and and targets this year. And we saw in 2022 astronomical obscene profits really by the oil and gas industry in the wake of Russia's unjust war on Ukraine. And at a time when they actually could be expected to be investing in a transition to clean renewable energy, they're actually doubling down on oil and gas, but trying to convince us that they're part of the solution. Yeah. And just disturbing in the sense that, you know, they've had all this runway to alter their business model. 
you know, and you know that there are people within leadership in these companies that have children. I was just, it's like a head scratcher to me at a certain point of like, how do you continue down the, the same path? Well, you know, sounds like ExxonMobil is one of the biggest culprits. Um, are there other organizations out there that are, you know, a big part of the problem that may not be as familiar to folks? Yeah, there absolutely are. So there have been new studies this year about um, about Shell and how the company actually downplayed concerns um, about climate change from the 70s and 80s, even as it had this awareness of potentially devastating consequences um, it really helped to shape um, shape publication and a narrative that emphasized scientific uncertainties and and pushed for for more fossil fuels. Uh, so that's an important piece of of evidence that's come to light. And of course, the American Petroleum Institute has played a an important role. It's, you know, all of the major oil and gas companies are part of this major trade association. And, you know, I know we've, we've talked in the past about the infamous, um, the infamous, what we call the roadmap memo of the American Petroleum Institute from 1998 that said that victory would be achieved when average citizens understand or recognize the uh, uncertainties in, in climate science. And, you know, the American Petroleum Institute continues its role in, in seeking to delay and block climate action today. Wow. Well, I'm guessing it's hard to sort of say exactly how these things have, what impact they've had, right? Like, you know, correlation versus causation, but clearly have, you know, had damaging impacts. I mean, does UCS have a sense of kind of where their their lobbying and disinformation has really played out in terms of delaying things? Well, I think one of the things that is very much on our minds now looking ahead to the conference of the parties uh, to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change coming up later this year is the presence that the fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel industry lobbyists have had uh, throughout that process, which is, you know, which is where the governments of the world come together to take actions and set the ambition that's needed to address the, this growing problem. And there's, uh, as you said, a, a correlation, at least between the heavy presence of the, of the fossil fuel industry in that, in that global forum and the insufficient action that the U.S. and, and other governments have, have taken. And it's, it's why people across the world are experiencing worsen, worsening climate impacts and, you know, of course, also those least responsible first and worst. So people of color, um, poor and indigenous people and, and people in the global south. Yeah, of course. Well, I, I'm wondering, and, and maybe the answer is it's just it's open to everybody, but how how do these fossil fuel lobbyists continue to have a seat at the table at you know the what is the you know major UN climate conference each year? Is that just because it's a you know anyone can attend? Um, 
Well, and in fact, um, I guess I, I left out one of the one of the key points um, about this year's uh, Conference of the Parties, COP28, is that the president of the Conference of the Parties is actually also the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Um, and so, you know, there, there have been real concerns there about the fox guarding the hen house in terms of, of climate climate policy and a real, you know, conflict of interest between the objectives of the climate uh, convention and the objectives of a major oil and gas company. And, you know, of course, here, here in the US, we've had an incredibly um, powerful and obstructive lobbying presence from the fossil fuel companies themselves, from uh, industry-specific trade associations like the American Petroleum Institute. Yeah, I guess that was one of my kind of next questions was how do elected officials or even media organizations like News Corp fit into all of this? It sounds like the American Petroleum Institute, the oil companies themselves have access to, you know, politicians' ears. Um I mean, how else is this all interconnected, I guess? Yeah, in in the U.S., I mean, of course, we had the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year, and we've celebrated the first anniversary of the adoption of that. And at the same time, you know, we are seeing that it, it did allow for continued build out of fossil fuel infrastructure, and we're seeing fossil fuel corporations try to interfere in how that that law is implemented in ways that would be favorable to business as usual. You know, another, and I don't know to what extent you've followed this or your listeners have, but many on the far right in the U.S. are attacking environmental, social, and governance investing, um, so-called ESG investing, you know, which has investors putting pressure on corporations like ExxonMobil and Shell has has been one of the major forces out there making them at least start to talk the talk of climate action even though they're not right. sufficiently walking the walk right and so um, you know it's it's um, really alarming to see and we've got the you know the fossil fuel industry's fingerprints are all over these efforts. And so that's happening at the national level in terms of, of uh, fighting against transparency. And it's also happening in, in various states uh, around the country. I mean, I'm sure before this interview, folks, you know, have known that the fossil fuel companies have worked to obstruct, but maybe not the, the magnitude and, you know, depth um, of their obstruction. And maybe they're feeling discouraged at this point, thinking, you know, that they're everywhere. Um, let's maybe pivot to what kinds of tools, solutions are out there to, to counter this lobbying that continues to go on despite, you know, certainty in the science, despite, you know, the climate you know, impacts getting worse um, in front of all of us. Yeah, there is definitely a lot to to be hopeful about in a lot of ways that people can get involved. So uh, by the time people are listening to this, the mobilizations across the country and around the world as part of the March to End Fossil Fuels will have 
happen, but we expect that there will be continued opportunities to get together, be visible and mobilize in the lead up to the Conference of the Parties meeting at the end of the year to raise visibility of disinformation and and greenwashing, you know, as more and more we are seeing ads from oil and gas companies claiming to solve the problems of climate change with technological fixes that are unproven at scale, um, but without actually, you know, without actually addressing the root cause of the problem in their own fossil fuel products, right? So for people to use social media, use their local media to call out those attempts, amplify stories that that come out in publications. Another really key way is um, holding these oil and gas companies accountable for the harms from their products and for their past and ongoing deception. So, you know, I mentioned the climate litigation that's underway across the U.S. So, you know, many people may be living in a state or a community that is already suing the the fossil fuel industry over over climate harms. Um, You know, it's an opportunity to let your public prosecutor know that you support that action and help to make that action visible. And I think, you know, for us as the Union of Concerned Scientists, we're increasingly helping it to ensure that that uh, scientists recognize all the opportunities that they have to engage uh, not only in, in public policy, but in research that may be relevant to climate accountability litigation. And, and just to say one great example is a study that some of my colleagues published earlier this year on the fossil fuels behind forest fires. This study found that nearly 40% of the area burned in the Western US and Canada since 1986 could be attributed to emissions from products and operations of the 88 largest carbon producing entities and and companies that study which was which was published in May of this year was already cited in a climate accountability complaint filed by Multnomah County in Oregon so it's really important that we continue to build the evidence so you laid out a bunch of options for people to kind of get involved and it sounds like obviously those in the scientific community have a particularly, you know, important role to play. And it sounds like, you know, that there is progress being made on the litigation front, which is exciting. I mean, I know there was a case that just happened in Montana, there's some success there where young plaintiffs sued the state. Um, if people are interested, you know, because there clearly are opportunities out there, where should they go? I mean, how do you find out if your local community is involved in climate litigation? Yeah. Well, uh, folks can definitely come to the Union of Concerned Scientists website. That's ucsusa.org. And we actually have a a feature on the website called the Climate Action Button, which will give people uh, options of actions that they can take. And our 
allies at the Center for Climate Integrity maintain a good website that shows uh, that includes a map of climate accountability litigation across the U.S. and and the world. Great. Well, we'll we'll publish those links uh, with our with our show notes because I think it's important. You know, I know even as we talk about this, obviously, I was aware of the problem, but you still find yourself frustrated. And I think it's important that we don't sort of move to the next step, which is, you know, throwing up our hands and saying we can't do something because there are clearly ways to, to get involved. Absolutely. There are there are ways to get involved. And there are so many people who are being energized more and more and feeling compelled to to join the climate movement. I think I said the, the last time we talked uh I am definitely motivated and and humbled too by the by the actions and the pressure from young people and from indigenous people in particular who are justifiably not letting us rest until we figure out how to address this problem and addressing this problem really means holding the fossil fuel companies in check. Yeah. Well, Kathy, thanks again for, you know, coming back and sharing some of your your knowledge about this topic. Thank you for the the work that you're doing in the space. Obviously, really critical and uh, good luck on that front and with these slew of climate litigation cases out there. Thanks so much, Jason. Great to talk with you again. So, great interview with Kathy. Not not surprising. Before you guys weigh in, I just want to say I was, well, I was frustrated and, you know, found myself even angry at certain points hearing about, you know, all the havoc that the fossil fuel industry has been wreaking. Um, I was encouraged hearing about the legal progress that's being made. I mean, obviously, we just talked about the lawsuit being filed in California, but, you know, seeing that some of this stuff is moving forward and recently, while it wasn't a lawsuit specifically against the fossil fuel industry, the lawsuit that where the plaintiffs won in Montana, there's lots to do. And yes, we need to, you know, do more to, to address the fossil fuel companies and all the damage they're causing. But I was excited to hear about the legal progress. Yeah. Look, I, I think that um, they, the oil companies definitely done their fair share at stalling this progress. I feel that this situation is, draws very similar parallels to what Toyota has been doing on the EV front, where for years they've been telling everybody that, hey, you know, we've got some like 600-mile range EV that will charge in five minutes like magic and please don't go and buy an EV quite yet, right? Meanwhile, we'll keep selling you some crappy, you know, internal combustion engine vehicle or hybrid or whatever that doesn't get the job done. Meanwhile, companies out there already are making really compelling solutions. And like I watched an interview um, with the head of ExxonMobil and he was saying, oh, yeah, look, wind and solar, they're, they're not quite there yet, which is absolute bollocks. But meanwhile, <laughs> hey, we're going to have this like carbon capture and storage technology that's going to be amazing and will let us keep polluting forever. And it's like, dude, we know that it's like, total greenwashing that you're not anywhere near commercial scales with this and who really wants to be sucking oil out of the ground and still burning it just to capture it again when we don't need to do that sorry that's my rant for the day <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. And it's gone from, you know, clearly this history where it was like climate change isn't real or it's not even going to be that bad to now it's like, hey, we've got these solutions coming. And, you know, by the way, fossil fuels are going to be this great way to to transition, you know, specifically natural gas. So, yeah, I mean, it's clear that you can't trust anything that they say at this point, <laughs> And we should be eyes wide open about that. No, true that. I was looking at some of the history piece that you're mentioning, Jason, and I feel like I'd read this before for classes, but every time I read it, I'm just, oh, I'm shocked. But I was reading specifically about Exxon, and in 1990, they hired two doctors, Fred Seitz and Dr. Fred Singer, uh, to come and dispute the consensus on climate change science, climate change's effects, all that jazz. And both of them had previously worked for Big Tobacco, and had been employed to question the negative effects of smoking. It all feels very sinister. And even further, you know, even past that, I think 1997, two months before they had the Kyoto Climate Conference, uh, Mobile, which, you know, we all know ExxonMobil now, this was before they had joined with Exxon, put out an article in the New York Times that was called Reset the Alarm. Within it, one of the quotes is, Let's face it, the science of climate change is too uncertain to mandate a plan of action that could plunge economies into turmoil. Oh, yeah. No trust. No trust for these companies. Seriously. You know what gives me hope, though, is we look back at the Dieselgate scandal and the repercussions from that lawsuit against Volkswagen. And not only was that the catalyst of having to build out all these EV charges across America and forcing Volkswagen to take the steps to you know, bring electric cars to market rather than just kicking that can down the road for years. But what it also did was put a whole bunch of executives responsible for this in prison. And that's what needs to happen. Woo! There needs to be some solid action and there need to be repercussions for the evilness that has occurred in the past. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the scale of damage that climate change has already had on, oh you know, on gosh, the U.S., yeah. on countries around the world, it's staggering. And you know, had we not had fossil fuel pushing back against climate action, it would have happened decades ago. I, I have no doubt in my mind. You know, and just for scale, you know, as we're talking about the impact the fossil fuel companies still have, Open Secrets has this great report where they talk about fossil fuel industry's 2022 lobbying efforts, and they spent mm -hmm. over $124 million. That's one year, $124 million. Whoa. That's so interesting that that was for 2022, because one of the facts that I found was about COP27, which was the conference in 2022, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Yes. Um, and the article that I found was talking about just the amount of lobbyists, fossil fuel lobbyists that were in attendance at the convention. Apparently, there were over 600 there, and they easily outnumbered indigenous groups that were in attendance. Yeah. And it's totally understandable that you know, you'd know you feel frustrated hearing this news and maybe even a little disheartened. But I, I think it's it's essential that we use that for a catalyst for action rather than you know, throwing up our hands because giving up is exactly what the fossil fuel companies want us to do. And, you know, it's thanks to all these people out there that have been pushing back, like, you know, the, the plaintiffs in these climate lawsuits, you mm -hmm. know, folks in the climate movement, that's what's driving change. And so, yeah, I think it's just worth calling out. We, we shouldn't be putting up the white flag with this. It should be a call to action. Yeah, no, you're definitely right. I think, like you've mentioned, just that Montana case is 
such a wonderful example where you have young people who are saying, no, like we have a right to live somewhere that's healthy for us. Um, you're right. It definitely is a really wonderful thing to see how people are responding to the frustration um, and anger that comes from these things. So before we we pivot to you know the question of what can we do, I uh, just want to call out, because he's clearly a victim of fossil fuel propaganda, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in the UK and his efforts to try to roll back climate progress there. So relying on all our British listeners to do their part to to push back on that. Um, you know, you read about his justification for it. It's just ludicrous. But, you know, it's all of us that whether it's the fossil fuel industry or politicians, it's, it's on us to hold them accountable. So with that being said, uh, there are obviously many ways to, to make a difference when, when it comes to addressing fossil fuel influence. The one we want to lead with today is calling on the Biden administration to declare a climate emergency. There's been pushes for this before. There's a big push underway right now. And the beauty of, of him doing that is it gives him special powers that, special powers, it sounds like he's going to you know be a magician here, but it would give him special <laughs> powers to, uh, to halt all U.S. fossil fuel exports, which could have massive benefits for the climate. It gives him the ability to halt billions of dollars that are flowing to fossil fuel investments abroad. So head over to whitehouse.gov and just submit a, you know, can be just a two-line comment telling him to declare that climate emergency and, you know, the urgency of addressing climate change. And if you need something, if you're feeling a little intimidated by those two lines and you need to dip your toe in the water first, <laughs> we also have an option that you should take while you're on your way to then calling on Biden to declare a climate emergency, which is to call on Google to stop the spread of climate disinformation on their platforms. There was an investigation released this spring that found that 200 YouTube videos were spreading disinformation, and together those videos had over 70 million views. So please, please, please go sign the petition on the Union of Concerned Scientists website, and once you've done that, you can tackle those two lines. Thanks, Flora. Yeah, the truth is you've you spent now probably 30 minutes listening to us, which we think is a good investment <laughs> of time. So just... You know, it's really about taking those two or three more minutes to go send a quick comment to the White House. Like Flora said, warm up first, mm -hmm. signing the petition. And we'll have, you know, links, talking points, all that kind of stuff on our, on our website if you need extra help. Well, that's it uh, for this week's episode. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. For those of you who want more emails they can look forward to in their inbox, don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.